0: Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. It is uh, great to see you live from uh, the sanctuary of uh, 383 Jarvis. We are so glad that you are here. I am uh, thrilled to be back doing live services, although I wish there were more of you here other than the technical team and the liturgy team. But we are so grateful. Hope you're having a great Thanksgiving. Hope you're enjoying it. Wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, we're glad that you are here. This morning, we are starting a new um, sermon series on the Book of Mark. When we first started our church way back in 2006, this Book of Mark was what we started our church with. These were the Sunday sermons that we did because we were doing this church plant. And we feel like in this moment, we're kind of redoing church finding a new iteration, maybe a Grace Toronto 3.0, and so this, we feel, is an appropriate place to start. We start with Mark. Mark is the briefest uh, and probably the first gospel written. Mark is writing to a primarily Roman audience that doesn't know that much about Judaism, so he shows Jesus to us concisely, vividly, powerfully, and a bit briefly, and he his history here with a summary statement. And so now I'm going to invite you to read with me Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read the first few verses. Mark 1, 1 to 11. I start. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is God's word. Mark here, at the beginning of his gospel, shows us his cards. He opens this narrative with a summary statement. And the rest of the book is simply proving this statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His whole point here, what he wants to say here is that Jesus is not just another human being, not just some great moral teacher, not just some great spiritual holy man, not some guru, not some prophet, but the very Son of God, the divine Messiah and Savior of humanity. And Mark says, I'm announcing him. That's what the word gospel means. It means an announcement of good news. Often when some great victory would happen, there would be an announcement of the good news. That was a gospel, an evangelion. But he says, I'm announcing this is the good news. Jesus Christ, he is the good news. Mark then goes to prove by saying two things. Firstly, this Jesus whom I'm announcing... Possesses the greater glory. Secondly, this Jesus who I'm announcing dispenses the greater grace. He possesses the greater glory, he dispenses the greater grace. Let's look at these two principles. He possesses the greater glory. So, after that summary statement, the announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark quickly turns to a, recounting the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a Jewish prophet who had miracles surrounding his birth. He had an astounding ministry and impact in Israel. Mark drills down on that here. He points out that John the Baptist had actually been predicted by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier. He quotes Isaiah, who wrote about 740 B.C., who... And he wrote that a messenger of the Messiah would come as a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And Mark says, this is the guy that Isaiah predicted. And then Mark describes not only the glory of his prophesied life, but the glory of his ministry. First of all, in what he wears. It doesn't sound that great to us. He's got camel's hair and a leather belt on. But the people who knew their Jewish history would know he's wearing the same kind of clothing that the great prophet Elijah wore. And they would know that there were prophecies in the Old Testament that in the final days, one after the spirit of Elijah would come, John is deliberately saying, I am that glorious, predicted final prophet. But not only in the way he self-identifies and clothes himself, but the way he is received. Look at the effect. The whole countryside between the Sea of Galilee kind of in the north center part of Israel, down to Jerusalem, the center population-wise of Israel, everyone's coming out to see him and be baptized. I don't know if we have an equivalent here, but let me try and give you one. What happens in your mind if a million Torontonians flock, oh, I don't know, to the Humber River (laughs) to hear the teaching of some guru and to go in the waters of baptism? to follow his teachings that would astound us that is the glory of this man john and yet this man so famous that jesus himself said of him truly i say to you among those born of women among all humans there has arisen no one greater than john the baptist so great that the jewish historian josephus writing about israel's history in this time mentions and speaks much more about john the baptist than about jesus This man pales in comparison to Jesus. How do we know? John the Baptist says it. John the Baptist says three things about him. One, after me comes one who is mightier than I. Two, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Three, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said in three ways this man possesses the greater glory than I. One, he's mightier than me. Two, he's more worthy than me. Three, his baptism is more powerful than mine. We're going to look at these just for a second. See the greater glory of Jesus in these three. One, Jesus is mightier than even the greatest, most powerful, socially impacting person. John the Baptist has the power to sway thousands And persuade people to repent, to preach and teach in such a compelling way that people are moved to tears. But Jesus, as we're about to see, has the power to rend heaven and earth. Jesus has the power to pull people out of darkness and addiction and slavery. And the guilt of sin and give them freedom and life. Eternal life. Jesus... John had the power of one of the most powerful social, political, and spiritual figures in the history of Israel, but Jesus holds history in the palm of his hands. John the Baptist had the words of God. Jesus was the word of God. Jesus is mightier than me because he's no mere man. Jesus is more worthy than me because he's no mere man. John the Baptist is a man after God's own heart. Jesus has called him the greatest spiritual person in the history of human civilization. He loves God. He wants to do God's will. If there was a, you know, a hero's trophy case, his would be right on top. But Jesus doesn't even fit because Jesus is in a different class. Jesus is not a man after God's own heart. He's God, made man, after humanity's own heart. He's God in the flesh. Come to take you and I who are of the flesh and make us one with God. Because he is God in the flesh. He is mightier than me. He is more worthy than me. His baptism is greater than mine. Jesus has the ability to make us one with God. He has the authority to send his spirit into you and to me into our hearts. He can bridge the gap between us and God. John can get people to baptize in honest repentance and desire for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus can put his spirit into you that accomplishes the forgiveness of the spirit of your sins. The spirit goes where Jesus tells him to. Think about that. This language is startling to Jewish listeners who are steeped in Jewish thinking. Wait a minute, only only God can bring his spirit to baptize people that way. This man, this Jesus, according to this man, John, this man, Jesus, has the authority. No, the power of God. He is God. This is what John is saying. This is what Mark is telling us, John, is saying. That when you meet Jesus, you don't meet another human being. You meet a human being, yes, but he's more than that. He has the power to rule the world. He has the power to remake all of the cosmos. He has the power to free and change and save and transform you. This is God become man. John the Baptist is saying, This one who will come is so much greater than I. We cannot be compared. His is the greater glory. The greater glory of Jesus is this. He is the incarnation of God himself into human flesh. He has come down to see us, be seen by us, and dwell with us. In the incarnation, the greater glory of Jesus is displayed. Quick implications here before we move to our second point. If you're a skeptic here, note that Mark, writing to Romans, who had no understanding of the Old Testament, had no problem telling people that part of the glory of John and the glory of the story of Jesus is that it was predicted so long ago in some Jewish scriptures that you don't know about. I want you to think about that because we tend to view the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament and the Christian add on to it, the New Testament, we, we tend to think of them as dusty old historical writings of maybe some spiritual value. And Mark is saying, no, no, no. This is God infallibly speaking, God infallibly predicting, God infallibly expressing himself. And hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, God, through Isaiah and others, was predicting his arrival and the arrival of John as a forerunner and witness to him. Think about How it could be that hundreds of years prior someone could be predicted. Try predicting. Try predicting the Prime Minister of Canada 400 years from now. Let me know how that goes for you. If you're a Christian, I want you to consider the great glory of God becoming human. Consider the glory of meeting someone so mighty he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Who is so worthy that no human is worthy to untie his shoelaces. Imagine. Meeting someone who's willing to open the gates of heaven for you, rend, as it were, the separation between God's realm and our realm so that so that God can come into your life and you can enter into the joy of life with Him. Imagine meeting someone like that. You have. It's the fall. We were driving up the DVP yesterday as part of just Saturday chores. And the The foliage was spectacular. People will drive sometimes for hours to see the beauty of the fall foliage. People will fly for hours to see the beauty of Lake Louise and Banff. There are people among us right there, right now doing that. They're taking a vacation from the busyness of life. And from the bleakness of COVID to look upon the beauty of the natural world. And here Mark invites us to take a vacation from the busyness of your life. And the bleakness of COVID and gaze in wonder and awe. Not on some foliage which will fall in a month. But on the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Who came to you from heaven. And if you will let him will never leave you. Revel in his power. Rejoice in his worthiness, his goodness. Give thanks that he has baptized you with the Holy Spirit and God lives in you. Wow. A greater glory. Secondly, a greater grace. Jesus dispenses a greater grace. Mark picks up. The story switches from John to Jesus arriving at the scene of John baptizing in the River Jordan. It says in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. So here's the scene. John the Baptist is doing his thing. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. This was a baptism of repentance for their sins and hope that God would forgive them. Very unusual kind of baptism in Jewish history. Almost like a covenant renewal ceremony. Israel was repenting of their selfishness, of their own spiritual independence and wandering away from God. They were trying to do a reset on their whole way of living and being. I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot these days about how COVID is an invitation to reset our whole way of living and being. That's what our culture calls it, a reset. It's what the Bible would call repentance. COVID, we're being told, is an opportunity to stop chasing privilege, stop enabling oppression, stop fomenting racism, stop being indifferent to the poor. Let's do a reset culturally. It could be God calling us, inviting us to stop chasing, chasing money, fame, power, pleasure, comfort. It could be all those things. But here's the problem. In our culture with all these voices calling us to reset, which is our culture's version of the word repent, calling us to repent of our privilege, our racism, our environmental indifference, our selfish spending, our consumerist habits, our sexism, on and on and so on. This is important to hear, the call to reset or repent. David Brooks, in his now seminal work, The Road to Character, said, There are heroes and schmucks in all our worlds. But the most important thing is whether you are willing to engage in moral struggle against yourself. That's his language for reset and repent. This kind of reset of our whole way of living is what John the Baptist was calling for back in his day. It's a wholehearted change. So put yourself at the Jordan River right now. Put yourself at the Humber River, if you will. You're being asked to walk into the river, the great river, at the bottom of the Jordan Rift, outside of most of the main urban areas. When you walk into that water and you feel the water beginning to rush past your ankles, then as you go deeper into your calves, then up to your knees, you're thinking to yourself, let the water cleanse me of my old way of living. Let it pour over me. Let it make me new. I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. I need grace. But now we've come to the scary place and the problem. That call we hear to repent or reset right now in our culture is a scary and vulnerable place. Why? It was then and it is now for this reason, a scary thing. Because our culture generally has no mechanism for us to receive forgiveness, to receive grace if we do want Honestly, to confess and reset and repent. Current conversations about these things are revealing a massive issue in our present culture. People are less inclined to repent of racism or social oppression or privilege right now. It's shocking that it's gone down in the last six months, say recent polls. Why? I submit to you for this reason. Because they have no place for grace if they do that. It's so hard to go into the waters of baptism, the river of repentance, without knowing that if you go in and you come out, there's a place of grace and forgiveness waiting for you. Our present culture, built so deeply on the idea of a meritocracy, right now has no place for grace for people who fall short of the standards. You just get ground down in the accusations. I quote David Brooks again this time from his most recent bestseller, The Second Mountain. He says, Our present meritocracy's soul flattening influence is only survivable if you have your own competing moral system that exists in you alongside of the culture. But if you have no competing value system, this meritocracy will swallow you whole. You hear him. So many of us have the, only the competing, only the value system of our present culture. So it swallows us whole. And since it has no place for grace, we have no place for grace. So we don't want to walk into the rivers of repentance and do a reset. And into this scene of longing to reset and hoping to. The scene of of, of the river with all kinds of people on the riverside watching the few and then the many going in wondering can i go in into this scene walks a 30 something carpenter called jesus and you know him imagine you know him you know this man has never done anything wrong this man I, i've never seen him have a selfish thought this man i'm beginning to realize has some greater glory than anyone i've ever met John the Baptist says this about him. I have met him. And he stands at the water's edge, and you're there, and you're like, you want to go in, and you're looking at him, and I'm too afraid, man. There's no grace on the other end. And he walks in, and you. what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you walking into the water? Are you going to go rebuke John? Is that what you're coming to do? Are you going to go to John and say, I should be the one doing the baptizing? You've heard Jesus say this, because he said it in Matthew 3. You heard Jesus, sorry, hear this from John when he went in. In Matthew 3, in the same incident, Jesus goes to be baptized. John tries to prevent him and says, I need to be baptized by you. What are you coming to me for? It's exactly what you're thinking. It's what John explicitly says. What does Jesus do? Baptize me. He presents himself to be baptized. He who has nothing to repent of, who isn't like me, who's done nothing wrong, says, Baptize me. And you're stunned. Why is he doing this? Now hold the tension in that question. Because just as you're trying to figure out... As you're on the river's edge, as you're trying to figure out why Him of all people would undergo a baptism of repentance since He has nothing to repent of, three staggering things happen. One, the heavens are torn open. Two, the Spirit descends like a dove. Three, a voice comes from heaven. All interrelated, all miraculous, all stunning. Firstly, the heavens are torn open. Mark tells us this actually more vividly than any other gospel account. They say the heavens are open. But Mark uses the word for literally rending something in half. The Greek word here, Mark only uses twice. Here, when he says the heavens are rent open, and at the end of Jesus' life, when he's just died on the cross, and the veil of the temple is rent ripped in two. This language is used generally for cataclysmic moments where God is ripping open the normal veil of separation between the heavenly realm where God is and the realm of the material world that we exist in. Heaven here is rending open the gap and invading earth. God is coming down. The two realms are becoming one. Secondly, Into this rend, the Spirit descends. From the one realm to the other, the Spirit comes and descends upon Jesus. The one whom John says can baptize us by this Holy Spirit first has himself baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Greek here, word best rendered into. The Spirit comes right into Jesus. This is the moment that Jesus begins his public ministry. Though he was fully God, he was fully God and fully human. And as a fully human person, he would need to depend upon God to fulfill his earthly ministry. He would need to have the Spirit of God to help him fulfill his mission. The Spirit of God would have to help him do his miracles to empower him to fully carry out his Father's call upon his life. It's arguable. It's possibly arguable. I don't hold this position. The Spirit of God... Was needed to empower him to resist temptation? I don't think so. Fully God, I think he could do that. But there's no question that he needed the Spirit of God, and he got him right here. Third thing that happens. God speaks from heaven, but we can hear it. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Here it is. God clarifying and repeating the summary statement that started this whole gospel. You are my son. My beloved son, this is, this is a promise that's a paraphrase almost of what God had said in Psalm 2. A psalm which is actually describing the final king of Israel, the one who will reign forever. Where it says, you are my son today, I have begotten thee. You are my beloved son. This is a paraphrase of Psalm 2. And in whom I soul delights, is pulled from what God had already said in Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. These two are being put together by God himself in these spoken words. Now I want you to think about this for a second. That word in Isaiah 42, the Hebrew word that's being translated, is delight. And this Greek word, which we have said, well pleased, is a bit watery English translation. It more means to take great pleasure in, to prefer over other pleasures. To delight in, I think, is a better translation. Men and women, of all the things, of all the things, in the cosmos that God delights in. That he, and he takes pleasure in so many things because he created so much. He called it very good. So much of what you delight in, he delights in. But of all the pleasures he has, this is his chief delight, his son. He cannot stop gazing at his son. He cannot stop feeling pleasure in his son. Like a parent that can see no fault in their child. We've met some of those, haven't we? You know those parents whose child is so perfect and they they never see a fault? They drive us crazy because it's so untrue. But this time this is true. There is no fault in Jesus. And so his father's delight in him is right and infinite. But if Isaiah 42 really is the foundation of where this came from, then God is delighting in his son who is his servant. His servant whom theologians from have read the Old Testament call the suffering servant, the one who's called to serve by suffering. Now you standing at the riverside, hearing these as a Jewish person, understanding the servant element, seeing Jesus be baptized, heaven and earth colliding, something's going to happen to you. You're going to go back and go, why is this son of a carpenter, who's clearly God, who's had all these crazy things happen to him in the last, why has he gotten baptized? And the veil between heaven and earth will break in your heart, and it will crash upon you. That this pure man, this sinless man, is being baptized not for himself, but for you and me. The incarnate one, who possesses the greater glory, is now being the identifying one who's identifying with you and me. People who need grace. People who do have something to repent of. People who have moral wrong that makes us guilty in the eyes of a holy God. He is getting baptized for me and you. He's identifying himself as a sinner though he has no sin. He's identifying our sin. As his. You see, this baptism at the beginning of Jesus' ministry points forward to a final baptism that Jesus will undertake. In Luke chapter 12, as he's nearing the end of his earthly life, as we flash forward, this is what he says. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus, the one who's already baptized right here, later on says, I have a future one, and it's killing me to think about it. What baptism was he referring to? The cross. Because at the cross, he will bear the sins of the world upon himself. All the sins of all of his people and all of those who believe in him. All of the guilt that he has borne all of his life, he will then pay for on the cross. He will become our full and final substitute. He will take the curse of sin upon himself. He'll stand in our place. He'll pay our guilt. He absolves our debt. He will bear the judgment. He will let the waters of God's judgment wash over him. That's the baptism he will finally do. And Jesus, knowing that he will stand under those waters, that flood of that judgment, that he will take our place here now, tells the world already, I'm going to stand in their place. I'm going to take a baptism that they can't take. I will take their judgment so they don't have to. The Son of God who came into human form and is the gla- greater glory of humanity because he's the incarnate Son of God now comes and says, I am the substitute who identifies with sinners. The greater glory of God incarnating in human flesh. The greater grace of God's Son identifying with human sinners. He dispenses a greater grace. John could only dispense the hope for forgiveness. Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection accomplishes that forgiveness for us. He dispenses a greater grace. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Quick applications first. If you're curious about the Christian faith, do a couple things first. Take a moment. Gaze at your true desires. Our culture tells us to value certain things, but our soul craves other things. Don't we find that intriguing and sometimes disturbing? I'll quote David Brooks again, this time from his latest bestseller, The Second Mountain. The lesson here is that the things we had thought were most important, achievement, affirmation, intelligence, are actually less important. And the things we have undervalued heart and soul Are actually the most important. This is his life discovery. That he had valued the wrong things. And built his first mountain of career. Upon those three values. And isn't that like our culture? Gaze at your true desires. You want a soul that is clean. You want a heart that loves. And you want to be loved. At the deepest core of your being gaze at your true desires. Secondly, allow your true desires to make you gaze at Jesus. What if it's true that Jesus is not simply a wise man, but greater than the wisest prophet, mightier than the most influential thinker and social influencer, more morally worthy than the purest, saint, spiritual woman or man we've ever seen? What if indeed he can baptize us With the very Spirit of God, he can rend heaven and earth and bring heaven into our very souls through the Spirit of God. What if God could live in you through Jesus? Gaze at your desires. With your true desires, gaze at Jesus. And finally, if you're ready, walk into that river of grace. Are you standing on the river shore longing to walk in and receive true forgiveness? and be baptized with a baptism of eternal life, life with God, Jesus, as it were, went in there first for you. He took the baptism of judgment, so your baptism can be one simply of forgiveness and grace. And he's waiting for you to come on in and take the plunge. Would you do that even today? Ask God to forgive your sins. Ask Jesus to cover you with the baptism he undertook. Now, if you're a Christian I'd say again, let's stop looking at the bleak clouds of COVID and take a break and gaze at the dual glories of the Son of God. He is the one God incarnate for you. Become human so we can behold God's glory. Stare at his glory. Allow it to change your soul. Secondly, gaze at the God who identifies with you. Became a scapegoat for you. Took the sin for you. Identified himself with you. You could be seen as him. And hear these words. Because if the gospel is true, this is true for you. These words that were applied to Jesus now apply to you. This is my beloved daughter in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well, well pleased. This is the one who I give my spirit into that I will live with. This is the one who I open up my arms and wait to welcome into my family. Soak in that water. Because of the final baptism Jesus undertook. Foreshadowed here in the first baptism he undertook of identifying with you, taking the curse of sin that you deserve upon himself. These things are true of you. Soak in that river of grace. A greater glory. God incarnate. A greater grace. Jesus identifying for us. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I ask now that you would come in all of your goodness, in all of your power, in all of your grace. Rend heaven and earth, as it were. Break the barriers in our soul that we might see the glory of the joy of you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are done. I am ready for questions, and I am seeing none on my phone. So... Uh, I could make some questions up for you. I could uh, take some from the techies and the liturgists who are here. But I do invite you in the next minute or two if you want to ask a question or two. It's time. If not, I will answer them personally for you a little bit later uh, when they come in. But right now I'm going to pray and we're going to uh, allow the worship team to help us close our service. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for your goodness and your grace. May you come now in all of your beauty. And may you help us to gaze upon you and see the grace that you dispense because of the glory of who you are. You are God in human form who became human and then became a scapegoat, a curse for us. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.